with you will be in Ephesians chapter 1, or you can follow along in the text in your bulletin. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll be focusing on verses 9 and 10 tonight, beginning in verse 7, just to provide a little bit of context on what's going on here, and just to sort of catch us up to speed. There's not much to catch up to here, but there's some important things going on here. The Apostle Paul opens um, the letter to the Ephesians in a, in a really grandiose way. He opens with a word of praise when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he goes on to enumerate all the blessings that God gives to his people in a really a grand way. He goes all the way and begins with the, the blessing of predestination, of God choosing a people for himself through his son before the foundation of the world. And now he's going all the way to the other side. He begins at the beginning and he goes across the scope of history of all the blessings we receive and ends with the fullness of times in verse 10. Paul is telling us, you, church, get all these spiritual blessings. God is doing all of these things, and here's what it's all aiming towards. Here's the end goal of everything. And as we'll see tonight, that is to unite all things in Christ. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Hear now the reading of the word of God. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him once more in prayer and ask his blessing. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we confess that without your help, we have eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, and mute tongues that will not sing. So we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we may see wonderful things in your law, that you would unstop our ears to hear your voice in your word, and that you would loosen our tongues, that through this we may sing your praise. And it's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I have a friend who is currently remodeling a home. Unlike, unlike myself, he's, he's quite the handyman. He used to do a lot of remodeling, and now he just sort of does it on the side. He's one of those people who just rebuilds homes and things like that for fun. Um, and, and he's doing a good job of it. He bought a home and recently had a pretty cheap price. This is maybe a two, three years ago, and, and it was a bit of a fixer-upper. It was small. It needed a lot of work. It was a bit run down and had been neglected a little bit, and he's doing a really wonderful job with it. He's, he's about to put a new roof on, in fact. He's, he's doing all kinds of interior work. He's currently in the process of, re of, of framing and, and adding a whole new addition on. He's going to more than doubles of the size of the master bathroom. I mean, it's really going to be impressive when he's done. I mean, most people who, who have been there when he first bought it, compared to even what it looks like now in progress, they'll tell you it doesn't even look like the same house. And I'm sure some of you have, have watched a lot of these remodeling shows on channels like HGTV, Fixer Upper, and Chip and Joanna Gaines, and all these people who love, and they come in and they get these rundown homes, and you get these before and after pictures, and it's just beautiful. 
And I think there's something about the idea of a home remodel that, that really strikes at us, that we really love. I mean, why else would they keep making all of these shows about renovating homes and remodeling homes and that kind of thing? There's something about something that's falling apart, something that's, that's reached a state of, of chaos and neglect and almost destruction and, and rebuilding it and making it new and not just restoring it to what it once was, but making it more beautiful than it was before, making it grander than it ever has been in the past. My friend, by the time he's done, he thinks he'll even be able to sell his, phone, his, his newly renovated home for, for almost double what it's, he originally bought it for. And there's something about this, about our entire lived experience that tells us it's not just the home remodel that works this way. We love the idea of something that's falling apart and yet gets restored back to something even more beautiful, something that goes through difficulty and comes out greater on the other side. Think of a marriage that goes through very difficult strife, a, a season of fire, and, and conflict and comes out more beautiful and glorious and firm and loving on the other side. Or you think of even when we exercise, about when you exercise and you go, you, you're running out of breath and you're getting tired and your muscle fibers are breaking down, but on the other side of all that sort of destruction, as it were, within your body, your body is built up and you get more fit, you get more healthy. Or think about basically every single movie you've ever seen. Basically every movie out there has the basic format of presented situation, conflict, resolution. Now think about if you went to a movie, how many movies have you been where you get presented situation, end, but there's no conflict in between. That doesn't happen. Why is that? Well, there's something about the way we're made, something about how God orchestrates things, how he's created the universe, that we understand there's something beautiful, there's something good. We want to see conflict in a way because we want to see what will come out of it. We want to see the beauty that comes out on the other side. And in fact, what scripture tells us is that this is the story of even the created order itself. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 at the beginning of the creation week, we read that the earth is formless and void and the Spirit of God is hovering over the deep. It's formless and void. It's this, it's this unfilled, empty, chaotic nothingness, completely unsuitable, completely uninhabitable. And yet out of that formless and void earth, God brings forth the entire created order, the land, the sea, the stars, the sun and the moon, the animals, and at the crown of creation, man himself. It's chaos that's brought out of order, and God creates the world beautiful, harmonious. Man is able to, to walk with the animals and name them. They're not afraid of him. The man and his wife, they're together, they're harmonious, and they're walking with God. And then what happens? God, who creates the world as a home for him to dwell with man. His home is wrecked. It is destroyed by a thief who breaks in, that comes to kill and steal and destroy. The serpent comes into this perfect garden paradise, and he, and he tempts Adam and Eve. And through the sin of Adam, sin enters the world. 
And then what happens? There is curse. There is chaos. And yet God even now is doing something out of that chaos. He is bringing forth something good and beautiful. Whereas sin came in and has destroyed the perfect harmony that God has established in his world, God is even now at work uniting all things once more and summing them up in Christ. That is Paul's message in this text this evening, is that God is working through Christ to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So today I'd like us to consider our text under two main headings, just two simple points for you tonight. One is God's sovereignty in restoration, and secondly is Christ's centrality in restoration. God's sovereignty in restoration and Christ's centrality in restoration. And now the first point that we can make about this text simply by Um, just making a general observation under this first point, this idea of God's sovereignty, is just this, that throughout this entire passage that we just read, God is the subject. You and I, we are not the subject. We are not to be found in these verses. We're we're there, but we are merely recipients. We're, We're passive players, as it were. We're receiving the benefits. We're being united to Christ. But who is the active player? Who is the one who's actually orchestrating all these things? Who is the one who's behind the curtain, who's pulling all the strings? It's God. God is the one doing everything. If you zoom out, and if you look at the whole grand scope of history, and you ask, who's behind all this? Who's, as it were, the man behind the curtain? It is God. It is God Almighty. The events of history are not random. They are not meaningless. They are not happening autonomously. No, God is at work. God is bringing everything about. We're not just living in a world of, of, that we go about our business and there's no real rhyme or reason. You know, some people think in the, in the modern world that there's really no purpose to history. There's no grand scheme of things. Now, maybe behind an individual action here or there, there's, there's some intention, there's some purpose. But really, at the end of the day, it's all just isolated events. Maybe one leads to another. But you can't step back in history and look at any kind of pattern. You can't point to any one player who's doing everything. Really, that's a, that's a rather hopeless way of viewing things, and it's not the way Scripture looks at things. No, the way Scripture looks at things is that Almighty God is behind everything that happens in history, and he is guiding it all to an end. Notice how much this passage emphasizes the working of God. Verse 9 says that God is making known to us the mystery of his will. His will, not our will, but his will. Furthermore, he is doing this according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. In other words, it is only by God's sovereign will that he is working. There's nothing outside of him that is constraining him to do what he does. 
It's not as if God is in a competition of the wills with some other deity or even with man. No, God's will is the supreme deciding factor in all of history, in all events of our life. He is the sovereign actor. And now while that may be true, I think it's important for us to pause and consider that the fact that God is sovereign over history is not necessarily in and of itself a comforting thought. Now, it's, it may be true that, yes, there's a sovereign God who is working all things throughout history, and yet we have to act, ask the question, um, what is this God's plan like? What is God doing? I think we've all been, at one point or another, subjected to the experience of having to submit to incompetent um, uh, leadership or someone who's leading the way who doesn't know what they're doing, um, you know, nobody wants to work for a boss who's bringing his business crashing down. We, you, know, you don't want to go into a classroom where the teacher doesn't know any more than the students do, where they're just mean and cruel. Nobody wants to follow a blind guide. And, and so we need to ask, well, what is it about the sovereignty of God that is good, that is comforting, that would make Paul want to exalt and that's where another aspect of God's sovereignty comes in, and that is the fact that God is executing a wise plan. God is a wise God. He's a master at orchestrating everything that he needs to do. If you look at verse 8, Paul notes as he's talking about God lavishing his riches of grace on the church, he says that God does this in all wisdom and insight. So it's not like God is haphazardly doing this and doing that, and well, he kind of has a plan, and he'll get around to, to this eventually, and oh, this popped up, I guess I should take care of that. No, God is wisely, with insight, orchestrating all things. In verse 9, we see that God has a purpose. He works his will according to his purpose, a purpose set forth in Christ. There's a plan there's intention to this. And in verse 10, we see that there's a goal to all of this. And it is the goal, and we will delve into this in a moment, it is the goal to unite all things in Christ. So God has a purpose in mind. He has a plan that he's wisely executing with every little detail. He's working everything toward that goal of uniting all things in Christ. So history isn't that, that random haphazard mess that many people in the modern world think it is. It's not cyclical. It's not this never-ending cycle that just goes over and over and over again like views of many of the ancient pagan religions around even Paul in his day, even in the East often in our own contemporary context. But it's also a good goal. You know, some people out there will think, oh yes, there's, there's an end point, there's a goal, there's a thing that history is moving toward, um, but it's not exactly desirable. Modern scientists will talk about the impending heat death of the universe, about how we live in an expanding universe, and eventually, billions or even trillions of years from now, the entire universe will have become so spread apart that life and even stars will be impossible to exist. They call it the, the heat death of the universe. And that's what everything is moving toward. And that's not a good purpose. That's not a good 
hopeful end goal. Personally, I don't know how anyone could, could live that way, but that's not what our purpose is. That's not what God's purpose is. His purpose is union of all things in Christ. The second person of the Trinity, the God-man, the crucified and risen Lord, that is God's good purpose that he is wisely bringing everything toward. God is the one directing all of history according to his wise plan. Think about this phrase here for a minute, the fullness of time, verse 10. In the Greek, the word time is actually plural. You could more literally translate it, the fullness of the times. There's an idea here of sort of periods of time, epochs of time, and God is planning to fill them up. So you think about from the biblical perspective, we have different periods of time. You could talk about pre-fall, post-fall. You talk, talk about when God had his covenant of works with Adam and now a covenant of grace or a covenant with Noah, a covenant with Abraham and Moses and David. You can talk about before the coming of Christ, after the coming of Christ. You can talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. We see different periods of church history. All of these are different periods of time, ways that God is working in his church throughout the history of the world. And what Paul is saying is that you can think of those periods of time as filling up. It's like a, the tank of history is getting fuller and fuller with each successive period of time and each year in history. And it's filling up and filling up and filling up until it reaches its fullness in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we should find great comfort in this. Because your life is not meaningless. Our life as a church, as a people of God, is not meaningless. It is not purposeless. It is not random. All of it. God is sovereignly working in all wisdom and insight for the grand purpose to unite all things in Christ. There is no such thing as a random, wasted, pointless moment in your life. Your joys, your disappointments, your suffering is not pointless. Even the most mundane moments in your life when you feel like life couldn't get more boring or ordinary, those are not pointless. God is orchestrating all things, every bit of history toward the goal of uniting all things in Christ. People of God, you who are the beneficiaries of this goal, you have a very meaningful, wonderful life in the best way possible. That doesn't mean that that you are the end goal of your own life. No, you have an even better end goal than yourself. Your end goal is Christ. To worship, to be with Christ, to be centered on Christ, which leads us to our second point, which is the centrality of Christ in the restoration of all things. The centrality of Christ. Because we still have this open-ended question. If that is our goal, if God is bringing all things about so that everything will be united in Christ, well, what does that mean? 
What does it mean to say that God is going to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth? I think if you've spent some time in the church, and particularly a Reformed church, you have some kind of idea of, of a doctrine of union with Christ. We know we see it all over the pages of the New Testament that, that we are taught that when we are saved, God unites us to Christ, that there is this mystical, spiritual, yet real, inseparable bond between Christ and his people. And yet, Paul here is talking of uniting all things in Christ. Now, what could that mean? Well, now here, uh, the Greek is, is very helpful. This word that's translated unite occurs many other places in the Greek literature of Paul's day, and most often it's used to refer to a summary statement either at the end of a piece of literature or a speech. So you could think of it, this idea of uniting, the specific word that Paul uses here as it's that conclusion, say, at the end of an essay that brings all the arguments together and puts them in neat order and summarizes everything. Or it's that, that conclusion at the end of the speech that rehearses in brief summary form everything that came before it. It brings order. It takes everything that is piecemeal and puts it together and makes it neat and gives it a center. It gives it order. It gives it union. It makes sense. It gets rid of the chaos and the confusion. And what Paul is saying here is that that is what Christ is for everything in existence. The entire created order. Because we live in a chaotic world. Now you think about it for a moment. Everything that we, that we experience, that we encounter in this world is in some kind of state of chaos, disorder, disarray, brought on by sin. God created a perfect, beautiful, harmonious world and sin came in and it disrupted everything. God had built up his house and then the thief came in and it tore the entire house apart and it wrecked the place and it ripped everything open and brought complete disaster. And the people living in the house have been affected. No one is free from the disorder, the disarray, the disruption, the evil destruction caused by sin. And if this world were left to its own, own devices, it would only get worse and worse as our sin continues to compound the original sin brought on by Adam, and this world left to itself would only return to that formless and void chaos out of which God brought it. But God doesn't give up on things. God doesn't look at the home he built, see the chaos it's brought into, and say, all right, flatten it, build something new. God isn't the person who, who goes through a difficult time in marriage and says, this is too hard, I'm done, irreconcilable. God isn't the person who looks at something difficult and says, that's too hard, I'm going to take the easy way out. No, God comes in and God is in the business of bringing about restoration and order. And he is doing that through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who comes back into the home and he puts things together. He drives out the thief. He destroys the sin. He takes care of it. And he is in the business of putting everything back together 
as it's meant to be, repairing the damage, and in fact, making it even more beautiful, more glorious than ever before. Than ever before. But now when Christ comes to do that, there's a difference between, say, when he comes to bring about this restoration compared to, say, when we would remodel a home. If you remodel a home, my guess is sometimes you may have a plan, you have maybe even a centerpiece. You see homes like this, that there is one particular, say, centerpiece, like a fireplace or some grand stairwell in the middle, something that everything's built around, or it could be a theme or a design that brings everything together, that brings a center to everything. But then you go in and you live in that home. Christ comes in, and Christ is himself the centerpiece around which everything comes together. He is that summary that brings order to all things. He is the center of the wheel that all the spokes go into. He is the capstone on the arch that holds it together, that acts as the center, the guiding line, everything in creation from the highest heavens to the lowest point of the earth, to every creature on earth, to every person made in his image, finds its purpose, finds its summary, finds its order in Christ, the crucified and resurrected Lord. Now, there's three different ways we can think about this. I'd like to just go over here. Three restorations that Christ brings about, of which he is the center. And the first is that he restores the harmony of creation itself. Now note how verse 10 says that Christ is bringing about a union of all things, things in heaven and things on earth. Now when you hear things in heaven and things on earth, that should set off an alarm bell. That should make you think of something. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth which is really just a Hebrew way of talking about two extremes to say everything. He made the highest point, he made the lowest point, and everything in between. All the created order, everything that God brought about by the word of his power, the entire creation that has been plunged into destruction and chaos. Paul says in Romans 8.20 that after the fall, the creation was subjected to futility and it was cursed. Two verses later in, in Romans 8.22, he says that the whole creation groans with the pains of childbirth. It is as if, Paul looks around him and he says, it's as if the whole world is in pain, as if it's waiting for some event to happen, some grand thing that will cause all the pain and all the groaning to go away. And we see this groaning of the curse all around us. If you turn on the news any given day, You'll see tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and occasional volcanic eruption, uncontrollable wildfires, a tsunami. We've all seen these things before. We've even lived through these things before we're experienced. We know that it's as if the earth is groaning and tossing and there's not order and there's destruction. I love watching nature documentaries and it's one of my favorite things to watch. And, and one thing that you quickly learn when you watch a nature documentary is how much chaos and destruction and curse there is in the animal world. It, it's fun to watch the animals, uh, you know, go about their natural habitats and see the beauty and the glory that God has created. And yet 
there's something off there. You see the animal world. You see animals fighting one another and, and the, the hunter hunting down its prey, the lion devouring the, the gazelle. And you see these, these animals fighting for territory and fighting for mates and eating each other. You even see some animal mothers that will kill their own young. And, and there's a sense in which we, we sometimes get sad. We almost get upset. And that's an appropriate feeling because there's something in us that says this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not harmonious. This is not beautiful. This is not grand. This is not how God meant for things to be. And what Ephesians 1.10 tells us is that this way of things is coming to an end. When you look out on the world around you and you see destruction and chaos, Paul is telling us that is coming to an end. Christ is bringing it to an end and he is uniting all things to himself so that one day all creation will no longer be like that. There will be perfect harmony, perfect order, perfect beauty once more as God intended it. That's the first restoration. A second restoration is that Christ brings about a restoration of man with God. Man with God. Now note how Christ is presented in this passage. If you look back at verse 7 here for a moment, it says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So it's not just Christ as the God-man that Paul has in mind. It's not as if all Christ had to do was to, was to become incarnate and that was enough. No, he's thinking about the cross. Paul's thinking about the blood that Christ had to shed. Yes, Jesus is bringing about a, a new world order and he's restoring all things and uniting all things to himself, but he does so through the cross. It is through the cross that sinful man is brought back into harmony with God, through the cross that Christ opens the way to God. It is through the cross that God judges the sins of his people. It is through the cross that we are separated from our sins as far as the east is from the west. It's through the cross that we see a picture of what God is going to do to all the unrepentant, wicked, and unrighteous and the sins of the world for eternity. And the scales of justice are perfectly balanced. And all mankind is brought before Christ and everything is restored. And what is at the center of that restoration? It is Christ, the crucified and risen Lord. In the age to come, when we live in the restored created order, at the center of it all will be Christ. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 gives a vision of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation around the throne of God. But there's something interesting going on there. They're not at war with one another. They're not fighting one another. They're not filled with hatred from one another. No, they're perfectly united in perfect union. And the centerpiece around which they are united is Christ. Chapter 7 of Revelation. 
You can turn there with me if you'd like to, or you can just listen along. Chapter 7, we get this vision of the Apostle John looking at this restored, created order. In verses 9 and 10, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every tribe, every nation, and peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. At the center of restored creation, at the center of man's right relationship with God is Christ, the Lamb that was slain and has now conquered. And at the same time, we also must admit that the And understand that Scripture tells us that Christ is also the center of perfect justice, of the judgment on the wicked. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In Philippians 2 verses 10 and 11, it says that they will not only be judged, the wicked, but they will bow the knee to Christ. It says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, even the judgment of the wicked, even sin itself, finds a center, a union in Christ, but it is a center of judgment. It is a center of being destroyed, and it is center of justice. Think about all the injustice we see in this world. Think about all the injustice that's going on in our lives. I've recently been reading a book about a series of murders in the 1920s of the Osage Indians. It's a book called Killers of the Flower Moon, and they were a rich people. They lived on oil reservations, and, and there was a man who systematically brought about the murders of 20-plus Osage Indians so that he could take their riches for himself. And at the end of it all... He receives a life sentence, doesn't even get the death penalty, and he's actually released early on parole, and the reports about it are he's not repentant in the slightest bit, and he's cold, and he's calculated, an evil man by the name of William Hale, and you read this book, and you get this sense, you get this anger as as it's narrating what's happening to this man, and how it, it takes all this legal rigmarole to get him convicted, and even then, not the sentence that you feel satisfied with. You just leave this book thinking, this man did not receive justice. Or think about all the wicked people we've seen in the 20th century. Think about someone like an Adolf Hitler. Yes, he took his own life, but at the same time, you know that, that this man did not receive justice. He was not tried. He didn't have to face his victims. He took his own life. Where's the justice? Brothers and sisters, there is justice coming. And that is justice that is centered on Jesus Christ. That is the second restoration. The last restoration we must consider is the restoration through Christ of all creation with God. Now, what do I mean here? I mean that when Paul says in verse 10 that all things are united to him, things in heaven and things on earth, there is a sense in which there is no longer a separation of heaven and earth. No, they come together, and they come together in Christ. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 says, From the Apostle John, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And he says, verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down 
out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. What do we have here? We have heaven coming down and meeting earth. And what is at the center of it? It is Christ. It is Jesus Christ. One more verse from Revelation. Revelation 5.13, the apostle John sees the heavenly throne room and he says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Not just man, but every creature, every corner of creation coming together in Christ, worshiping him in perfect, harmonious union. Brothers and sisters, why do we gather on Sundays? Why did you come here this evening? Why do we come in here and read from the word, pray the word, sing praises to God, hear the preaching of the word, and spend time with one another? It is because we are getting a glimpse of the end for which we were made. When you walk through those doors, every Sunday, you are walking into a glimpse of the end for which God has purposed all things, and that is to unite all things in worship of Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray.